This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast conversation is brought to you by Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Several School of Divinity alumni have thrived within Baptist life, serving in significant positions of leadership in local churches and larger denominational organizations. The school's newly launched Baptist Commons program draws on this success and fosters student leadership, engages alumni, and cultivates relationships with supporters to deepen its distinct Baptist heritage and role in fostering excellence among diverse communities of Baptists. To find out more, visit divinity.wfu.edu or call 336-758-5121. Our guest for this week's podcast is Todd Bolsinger. He's the author of Canoeing the Mountains and the Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation at Fuller Seminary. Todd, thank you for joining the conversation. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I guess my first and most pressing question would be, was the California State University at Northridge mascot Maddie the Matador when you were in school? Oh, man, I bet. I don't think I even knew. I was, I was, when I was going there, I was mostly involved doing uh, ministry with Youth for Christ, and I barely, barely did anything but show up for a class and get on to go meet with kids. So I don't even know what it was. Uh, you know, I was kind of perusing your... Um your profile as I was you know, preparing for this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Northridge, I know where that is. I wonder what their mascot mm-hmm. is, Maddie the Matador. So, all right, besides the fact that you yeah. live in one of the most gorgeous parts of the country, tell us a little bit more about your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when I was in college working for Youth for Christ, I did uh, evangelism with high school students. I got uh, asked um, to try to do a open a, a high school ministry in Hollywood that, that led me to Hollywood Presbyterian church. Um, a couple of years later, they asked me to come on their staff. I was 23 years old and they uh, asked me to become their college pastor. And they said, Hey, you're going to run out of youth talks you do, uh, by Christmas. So we're going to send you to seminary. And I ended up, uh, they sent me to Fuller seminary and I was glad because I ran out of those youth talks by Thanksgiving and, um, and a Hollywood Presbyterian paid for my way to go to seminary to Fuller and because they did and they were incredibly generous, I was able to get a PhD and they're in um, one of the very first practical theology PhDs. And then I ended up becoming the senior pastor at a church in San Clemente for 17 years, raised my kids in this beautiful beach town. And, and then God disrupted all of that at a time of deep disruption in theological education when Mark Labberton became president of Fuller and asked me to come back to Fuller and help them go through a process of rethinking theological education. And I've been there for 
almost five years and it's been an amazing, amazing journey. All right. Besides the fact that everyone now at this point and listening to this just hates you because of everything you just described that you experienced in this amazing place, just give us a snapshot of what the weather's like today in California. Um, yeah, 75 and clear. Um, <laughs> 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 Sorry. I mean, you could have called me three days ago when it was raining and I could have said it's raining terrible and you know, but it's not, not today. So. Yeah. I, I remember reading one of your books that you had a office that overlooked the beach and I thought, man, this guy's life. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for you, you yeah. described ministry kind of uh, in college and obviously experiencing a changing ministry in, in California and I don't, I don't really think it matters the context, but for all of us who've been in church for at least a decade or two, are noticing that the times are changing. And according to yeah. a recent study, between 6,000 to 10,000 churches in America are dying each year. That's a rate of 100 to 200 churches per week. And yet at the same time, spirituality in America has never been higher. This is a, a multi-billion dollar industry with books and apps and videos and retreat centers and gurus and fitness classes mm -hmm. and group therapy sessions. However, the more spiritual uh, are, are divorcing the church at a greater rate, moving, moving on without looking back. And so for many churches, they're stuck at this crossroads between what once was and what is yet to be. Um, what do we do with this rapidly changing landscape of how people are relating to the church? Well, I think the first thing we do is actually have to um, really admit that. I mean, I mean that the statistics and the stuff you're talking about has actually been happening now in the church for the better part of 20 years. Um, matter of fact, when I, the whole reason why I wrote the book Canoeing the Mountains is because I had written a book that came out of my dissertation that was on uh, the changing nature of spiritual formation. And so I, I wrote a book called It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian that was on communal practices of spiritual formation. I was asked to speak on that to a group of Methodists in Portland, Maine. And after I finished my three talks, they asked me to do a Q&A. And all anybody wanted to talk about was, how do you keep our church from dying? And I remember at the time thinking, um, I didn't come here to talk about church growth or church renewal. I came to talk about deepening the church, not broadening the church. And yet what they were anxious about, and this was a really important lesson for me, is that no matter what I want to talk about, there's another conversation going on with the people on the front lines, especially for pastors and for um, organizational leaders, who there are things keeping them up at night that we're not even addressing and that we need to listen to them first. And so as I began to listen to them, and this is Portland, Maine in the early 2000s, I'm thinking that became a reality that is now sweeping the country with the kind of statistics that you're talking about. And so for every mega church that seems to be doing something great, there are churches closing everywhere. And according to, you know, the Pine Tops Foundation's recent study that they did at greatopportunity.org, they're projecting that for the next 30 years, we're going to have a million young adults and youth leave the church every year, a million. And so there is this desire, this need to deal with the reality that the world has changed dramatically. And we can't just keep going back and doing old things better. Here's a fun fact that you can add and use this whenever you want to. Portland, Maine was named the whitest city in America. But, um, you know, <laughs> you know, that's it's not exactly an accolade that you're pursuing nowadays. But, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. for some people, they would look at this as a scarcity. I would look at this 
as an abundance. So if we work out of an abundance, yeah. there's some there's some positive here. For first, I think we have to remember that the church has experienced this before in the first couple of centuries of its existence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the second is the Spirit of God is leading us to get out of our apathetic and entitled rear ends and actually discern what creative and innovative ways we can re-engage the world around us with with authentic and relevant expressions of the love of God. Uh, how do you view this opportunity? Well, just similar to that. So I would say the biggest thing that's changed is not spiritual need of people and is not even the relevance of the church. What's changed is the context we're in. So an example I often use is that, um, you know, uh, when I was, if you ever come visit me at Fuller and you, I mean, it's a beautiful 75 degree day like this, um, come to my office and I'll tell, show you a copy of the Los Angeles Times from December 1963. And, it, and somebody saved it because it had an article on the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission. They gave it to me because on the front pay section, there was an article on the then 9,000 member Hollywood Presbyterian Church in 1963. When I was worked there, it had about 4,000 members, and today it has under 1,000 members and is, and is a still a, a downtown church. And yet well, the reason why I kept it is because in December 1963, the LA Times used to publish a box every week with a week's worth of daily Bible reading. And the big difference between today and 1963 isn't spiritual need. Billy Graham's crusades were at their peak in 1963. It's that the world doesn't give Christianity a home court advantage anymore. We don't, we can't even imagine the LA times helping you with your morning quiet time. And so what you have is the, the decline of Christendom where the world supports Christianity, the culture supports Christian Christianity. And so what's the hard part is that most of us, have been trained in leadership, have organized our churches, have arranged the way in which we function, have set the expectations for what a church should be for a Christendom world, a world where everybody knows that the center of the world should be focused around some core values and that those core values include religion. I mean, I've, I've said that whenever you travel in almost any small town in America, it's like the same city planner set up, planned it. There's a town square with a, you know, with, it has a park that has a statue of the most famous dead guy. And then there's a, there's a library and a courthouse and the first church of whoever got there first, like first Lutheran, first Baptist, first Presbyterian, and all the other first churches are all on second street because for the better part of a couple hundred years in the United States, everybody assumed that the center of every culture and every town and every society should be law, education, and religion. And that religion was Christian religion by and large. And that's not necessarily that everybody was a Christian. So what we're really talking about now is a changing environment where we no longer have a home court advantage and where we no longer can assume culture will support us and where we no longer can assume in any way that we'll be praised and appreciated for being church people or Christian people. And right now we have a giant decision to make. Do we want to keep going back and trying to recapture cultural dominance? Or do we want to move forward into a day that is far more like the early church, where we get to have the, the mission field and our vibrancy and our reason for being right outside the door? I mean, you no longer have to cross seawater to find a mission field. All you got to do is cross the sidewalk. And so we have, I think there's this opportunity in front of us that's going to require us to learn to lead all over again.
So I think most of our listeners are completely on board with uh, your assessment of our of our culture and, and the church. But how do we how do we move our congregation from hearing these facts that drive them into feelings of scarcity? And how do we move them into seeing this into a, an opportunity of abundance? Well, one of the first things to do is to recognize that it doesn't do any good to try harder. Um, trying harder doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is that um, I, one of my friends tells the story of, a, of a, his uh, spiritual director who spent a day in a flight simulator on a Marine Corps base through an odd uh, combination of events. And what he, when he asked, the spiritual director asked the, the Marine who runs the flight simulators, why do you train the flight simulators? The answer was, at the moment of crisis, you do not rise to the occasion. You default to training. We were trained for a Christendom world. We were trained for that. Our assumptions, our mental models, our skills are built around Christendom. And that for most of us as pastors, that means we basically have three things in our in our you know tool belt, we we preach, we talk really well, we preach, we pr- do programs for anybody who will show up, and we do pastoral care for people when they ask for their for the pastoral need care. Well, what if you live in a world where people aren't coming to your worship services, so they don't listen to you preach, they don't come to programs, even the ones they say they want, because they have too many opportunities and too many options anyway. And you can't even find them in a hospital because they're discharged before uh, you can get there to visit them. So now what do we do? How do we actually demonstrate uh, what are the set of practices and the set of leadership practices we need? And that's the changing world. We've got to be trained for a different world. And that's the whole, whole premise of the book Canoeing the Mountains, which is when Lewis and Clark stepped over the Lemhi Pass, they found a world that it was on nobody's map, at least no white people's map, and that nobody who came from Europe had a mental model for the world they were going into. Hmm. So in 2005, you released this book, Canoeing the Mountain, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. And, and for the published... 2015. <laughs> uh, yeah. What did I say? 2002? 2000. Yeah. yeah, you said 2005. 2015, yeah. 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 Uh, something significant must have happened in 2005 for me to be uh, <laughs> dropping that. So, all right. So when it's first, first published... Uh, and I read the yeah. book in 2015, uh, not 2005. Um, I was pastoring a, a new church start whose identity um, was made in, into this culture of trekking into this post-church culture. And, yeah. but, but now I, I pastor a church that is much like many of our CBF churches. It's a church that has a rich history of creative ministry, but it finds itself at this crossroads of once, what was once and what is yet to be. So, so let's start there. Zeroing in on... And what would you say are the most essential elements for transformative leadership as we talk about uh, retraining ourselves in, into this uncharted territory? Yeah. So, so what I, I, I use this illustration of Lewis and Clark because it's a really, it's a really interesting and I think hope giving um, illustration. Um, so they, of course, were trying to find a water route that everybody thought was there, a water route that would give the then young United States of America, an economic advantage in the world. So they would connect the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean, and then they would basically have the ability to, um, you know, basically be like owning Amazon today. All of the goods and service, all the goods, all the raw material, it's easier to transport, transport them over water than it is over land. You want to own the water route. 
everybody had been looking for a water route from Europe to Asia, you know, for 300 years. They all assumed it was there. They step over the Lemhi Pass and they discover the Rocky Mountains. If you're canoers and you think you're going to go into the world, to the future through rowing and there isn't any water, then you have to then recast your ability to move forward. So what's needed here, when we talk about transformative leadership, is the first thing that's needed is technical competence. You have to demonstrate your competence on the map before people are going to follow you off the map. So Lewis and Clark were really good leaders of the Corps of Discovery for 18 months on the river. They developed a really good core of people who functioned really well together, who were healthy and trust each other and dealt with conflict and did a bunch of things that then prepared them for the minute when they had to be able to drop the canoes and acknowledge that they're no longer going to be able to hold on to their canoes and they're going to have to go into uncharted territory. And that technical competence combined with what I call in the book relational congruence, like they were themselves deeply trustworthy people who showed up the same in every realm of leadership meant that they could then prepare to go into a world where they were going to have to adapt. And in a rapidly changing world, adaptive capacity, adaptive leadership, as Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky from Harvard call it, is really the critical skill. And that critical skill is your capacity to take a people into a place where they're going to have to learn and learn as they go. They're not going to be experts. And they're going to have to deal with loss. They're going to be canoers who have to drop the canoes. And they're going to have to be water experts who are going to have to get on the back of a horse. And they're going to have to decide that they're going to keep going, even though they are having to learn as they go and face losses along the way. And what most you know, churches, especially churches who have had some degree of success in the last 30 or 40 years, some sense of numerical growth and um, some sense of impact is really having to grapple with is that you can't just keep doing what you were doing. You're going to have to actually take the competency and trust that has been built, the credibility, the trust, and then spend it with people who are going to be disappointed in you that you don't have answers and you're going to ask them to face loss. I love a good adventure. I mean, for me, it started venturing out to the wilderness in the backyards. I was either Indiana Jones or Han Solo. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. that turned into venturing overseas to do tsunami relief work in my college years. Then it turned into the adventure of starting a new church. Many of our clergy are adventure seekers. And as you've argued, discovering what is next for the church is an adventure. However, many of our congregations would probably respond with, um, this exchange I remember reading from The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins says, mm-hmm. we are plain, quiet folk, and we have no use for adventure. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things makes you late for dinner. No, we don't want an adventure here, not today, not tomorrow. I suggest you go over the hill and across the water. So, mm-hmm. so what are the first steps when facing an unadventurous people? Yeah, yeah. So, so the first, so I would say there's, there's the first steps of this, and I'm trying to figure out which order they would go in, but the very first step is you actually have to help people deal with reality. You've got to be able to gently and kindly lead them into the reality that the world has changed. In one sense, the adventure isn't a choice anymore. 
It really is adventure or die. And, and now, but the hard part is that for most of us is that that feels like a threat. So for those of us who are adventure seekers, we can't be shaming people into the adventure. So what we actually need to do is love them deeply. We need to develop deep relationships. We need to help them realize um, that they are dealing with loss. Ronald Heifetz says, um, people don't resist change, they resist loss. So that combination of helping people deal with the reality of of the changing world and helping them come to grips with loss as an animating energy for change is really critical. For most leaders, the hardest part is what they wish they had was a church that was nothing like the core, it was exactly like the core of discovery, right? A bunch of adventurers, which is why for a lot of us, you know, we start out thinking about church planting because that you, you get adventuresome types or going into nonprofit ministry or taking on mission work or deal with, you know, social justice issues. But you tend to get really adventuresome types. The deal, however, is I do believe that one of the things God is doing is he's taking a bunch of adventurers and doing what he did in your life, pull them back into the life of the church because it's the church that has to go. The church is God's answer to the pain of the world. It is the people of God who are to reveal the presence of God in the world. And so, you know, so, and that's, that just takes a different kind of leadership that most of us were not prepared for or tra- trained for. We didn't expect to have to do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's complicated. It's painful. Um, one of my favorite quotes on leadership that comes from these guys at Harvard is um, leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. And it means you're really having to help people deal with, with, uh, with loss, help them be humble enough to learn and help them continue to have the resiliency to carry on. And it's, it's, it's tough work. It's really tough work. So just a one-off sermon should be able to fix it, right? No, yeah, 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 really. That's the biggest problem. We have a little statement. I have a phrase a friend of mine says is that we Presbyterians are so good at talking about stuff that after a while we think we've actually done it. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's one of the things we have to be really aware of is that it's a long work. It's a long work. Well, we Baptists have another saying, uh, committee it and committee it until you kill it. So um, we're the same way. So my favorite chapter in the book is um, a two church, which when I actually uh, read that chapter, I snotted on myself as a literary dork. But um, (laughs) this chapter, you argue that leaders should expect, embrace and not take personally sabotage against their transformation leadership. And you wrote sabotage is natural. It's normal. It's part and parcel of a systematic process of leadership. Saboteurs are usually doing nothing but unconsciously supporting the status quo. I'd like for us to, to nestle here just for a bit, primarily due to the fact that many mm-hmm. of our listeners are pastors that are seeking to bring transformative relevance to their churches. Inevitably, mm-hmm. they're going to face opposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, so this is actually, it's a good place to set for a bit. This is actually what's, what's behind the work of the book that I'm writing now that, came, that really came out of, you know, traveling, I don't know, at least maybe a, a half a million miles talking about this in the last 10 years, and especially in the last three, is that the place that's really the most difficult is that all of us can see ourselves as a vision caster. We want to stir up, you know, the, the yearning for the endless sea. We want to cross the mountains. We want to take people in the future. And the, the reality is we are taking people who are going to resist us and be angry at us. It is Moses in the wilderness with the very people that he freed 
six weeks later, they want to go back to slavery. Like, like literally, like, my, my gosh, they killed our children, but at least we had leeks and onions, right? And so you, they can hardly believe that they want to return. And that sabotage is such a brutal word, but that is exactly what it is. It's not, it's not mine. It's Ed Friedman's word. And Ed Friedman talks about the fact that it is normal and natural. It is what people do when they absolutely think they're doing the thing they need to do to save themselves and to save the institution, save the church. And so the, the entire work of dealing with sabotage is at the heart of adaptive leadership. Um, it's how you actually help a people grow through their own resistance so that they can get trans- be transformed for the future. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You know, part of the part of the interesting facet that we find ourselves in um, in this post-church culture is it is becoming increasingly more difficult for someone who gets upset with the pastor or with a committee and just simply go to the other church in town because we could find a day where there's not many options with as many churches are closing. Mm-hmm. Doors. And so one of the fascinating things about your argument about facing sabotage is how you treat the saboteur. You said, I, yeah. I don't recall in, in my seminary training um, though there the number of years since my divinity school experience, the numerically is getting higher and higher than I care to admit, but they never taught me anything about authentic care for those that are being so difficult. So, so take yeah. us a little bit more into that of how we, how we care yeah. and pastor those yeah. who are standing in the way of change. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's two parts that happen at this moment. This is one of the places where I think a pastor, let's just use the idea of a pastor. It can be any organizational leader. We certainly have it in the seminary, right? The leader or the pastor has to acknowledge, first of all, I have not only been called to this task, I've been called to these people. Like it's Moses sitting there with God defending his people, right? I've been called to these people. My job is to lead these people forward in the mission of God in the world. That's painful because they very well can reject me. But I then need to have an identity that is rooted in Christ and rooted in the call of God in my life to the task and the people, that identity, that vocation. So what you have then, when I know that I'm called to these people and to this task and that I'm not free from either one of them, then what I can recognize is I can now begin to use empathy to deeply understand their resistance, to listen really profoundly deeply. And, and I, I remember this so profoundly. I mean, I've been in, in a church that I led. I remember a, a pa- person looking at me and saying, you know, like, like, this is no longer my church. You know, this church doesn't feel like it's mine anymore. I don't have a place here anymore. All these new people are coming. These things we're doing. This is 
no longer my church. And, and what I would need to help them get is, actually, this is why you came to this church. It's because you were once the outsider. You were once the person who, who was out there, and now you've been welcomed. You found a deep home. You found what you were longing for. And you have to recognize you are now being called to offer that to others. And that the very moment when you want to hunker down, that hunkering down would actually kill the church. And that's, so you need to be deeply caring. You can't, again, you can't shame, you can't force, you can't try to bludgeon or bully people into changing. Um, you have to be able to use relationships, reframing, helping them see differently. And you need a, a kind of resilience that just keeps going. I mean, I think one of the hardest things for most Christian leaders is at the very moment when people are feeling lost, so they're saying, stop, 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 is when you have to say, I know, I hear you, and know we're going to keep on going, because the only way out of this is through, and that is profoundly painful. I have the illustration you, you bring up in the book that, you know, not far removed from Egypt and slavery, uh, the Hebrew people wanted to go back when they started facing difficulty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see it in the scriptures a lot, right? You see it in, even, you know, one of the most interesting passages for me that I, don't think that, that I look at this through this lens is post-resurrection, right? So Jesus is with his disciples post-resurrection in the beginning of Acts, and he takes it before them, and they say to him, is now the time that you are going to restore David, the kingdom of David? And you think about this, just six weeks earlier, they were sitting in a garden, pulling their swords, ready to fight. And they were disappointed that Jesus didn't start the revolution to remove Rome. They, they go through this deep crestfallen, I mean, tragic disappointment. They all scatter. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And he reveals himself to them. And the, the Christian tradition is he teaches them for 40 days and 40 nights. He's about ready to leave them. And all they can still think about is now, is now the time that you're going to basically overthrow Rome. Now we're going to use this like resurrection power to do it, right? And he waves it away like a, a teacher who is exasperated with a student who still doesn't get it. And he gives them a complete different reframe, right? It's not for you to know the time when eventually, eventually the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. You know, eventually every knee will bow and tongue confess. Eventually all the nations will come in and give it, become part of the, of the kingdom of God. But now is not the time. Now is the time for you to do this other task I put in front of you, which is the act of being a witness. And you're going to have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And I, when, he, when he leaves, when he disappears into that moment, they must have been devastated again, right? They've got to, until the Pentecost, until the Spirit comes, and now they get it. And so I think this is the ongoing struggle for those of us in ministry is that we think we can give one sermon, they'll get one point, we've said it before, they should understand, they should see it in their Bible, of course we're gonna go. And they, their resistance and their continual defaulting to the status quo is just pervasive throughout the scriptures. Hmm. I wonder at times if some of the difficulty we face is that we, we as a church tend to not create platforms for people to to confess and to vent and to air their frustrations out. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, we really don't equip people with the tools necessary to to navigate these changes. You know, what what would it look yeah. like 
to uh, create a space to allow people to ask questions instead of assuming, mm-hmm. to, to turn to wonder instead of criticism and cynicism, to pray mm-hmm. instead of just mm-hmm. being frustrated, you know, just turn to hope yep. to, find, to find their place in all of this, you know? So I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've discovered what that platform looks yeah, like. We- well, so I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you this, but one of the key spiritual practices, so the, the book I'm working on now is what are the spiritual practices that enable somebody to lead people, lead through the resistance of change, to develop the resilience to lead people through change. One of the key spiritual practices in the middle of this is lament. And lament is a deeply biblical structured approach to what do you do with disappointment? What do you do with injustice? What do you do with failure? What do you, what do, you do when the world is just is raises up against you and where your life is not turning out the way it should be and when everything within you screams this is not the way it should be and there's a pattern there that is really a deep a pattern of brutal honesty even to the place of accusation of god that leads you through a process of ultimately coming back and making a vow of trust and what we need is that combination of Brutal honesty of being willing to believe that God can take it, that, um, that, that we have a relationship with God that can sustain our honest disappointment, anger, discouragement, and at the same time fall back on our deep trust in God. And that's why, I mean, you mentioned cynicism. I am convinced that cynicism is the cancer of the church and that cynicism is the pain of idealism that was um, that was never completely confronted with our own honest humanity, and so that when we find ourselves being, you know, wide-eyed optimists who were idealists, who then are crushed into the fallenness of humanity, if we don't turn to lament, we will end up becoming cynics, and we will poison it for the rest. And so, lament is our way through. It's our way of being brutally honest. And being and tr- trusting in our relationship with God more than God's uh, than the rea- than the reality in front of us that may be a long painful reality. Hmm. Thinking about all of this work, all of this poured into uh, an individual minister who is gathering people and committees and teams around them to make this happen. It's, it's really no wonder that Forbes named pastoring one of the top 10 most difficult jobs in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and th- I, I would say one of the biggest parts that I spent a lot of my time on is spending some time thinking about the idea of clergy burnout. And, um, you know, a lot, we usually that conversation goes toward, Hey, we need better balance, ba- uh, balance in our lives. We need better boundaries. We need to be able to t- do self-nurture and self-care. And all those things are really important. But I do think the biggest part is that we have, most of us are deeply disappointed that what we got into is not what we signed up for. And so most of us get into ministry because we are in love with the scriptures and in love with people. And, and I would say that one of the things about working in a seminary is almost every single person who ever came to the seminary was told by somebody, you're like the best Christian I know, you should go pro. And they end up going to professional Christian school, believing, oh my gosh, the greatest thing in the world, the thing I would love to do, I love the scriptures, I love people, I'm going to get to do that for my whole life. And the next thing they know, they are leading a community of people, and most of their world is about the organization. The, the, I mean, they have to deal with conflict, they've got to deal with uh, employment law, they got to deal with building campaigns, they got to deal with budgets, they, they got to deal with Excel spreadsheets. They're, they're leading a people, leading an organization 
they're not just dealing with scriptures and with people. And in one sense, you see this actually even in places like Ephesians 4, where, where you know, pastors and teachers and the gifts of the church are the whole body of Christ, but that those of us who are called into this role of leadership are mostly called to equip others for some of those tasks, which means that stepping into pastoral leadership means really stepping into a role that is serving in a way and leading in a way that it sometimes feels really disappointing, different than the, the things that we love the most. So this book has been out for three years or 13 years of, for those of us that can't actually read the date. Um, what, are, what are some of the greatest stories um, in response to this work? I think the single, there's, there's two things I would say right a bit. One is, from the very beginning, I've wanted to say adaptive leadership is really a, not a quick fix. So every single place I go, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm traveling 100,000 miles a year these days speaking about this. And, and part of the reason why I get asked to do this is because I work at a seminary and people are literally asking me, how are we training differently? What is, what is Fuller doing differently than other schools? And we are in the midst of our own really radical changes. And I get to be part of the team that does that. So I get asked a lot of these questions. And one of the things I'm really aware of is, is that we, I say we are, you know, after you know, 1,500 years of Christendom, we are 15 minutes into post-Christendom. And so we are all just at the very beginning learning stage. And so the most basic part about this is to recognize there is no silver bullet. There is no expert. It is literally, I believe, God calling the church to work together across lines, to be humble and cooperative and to become a core of discovery that is willing to be a community that, that thinks differently and thinks profoundly differently about this world we're in. And, and perhaps the most powerful thing is the acknowledgement that in the same way that Lewis and Clark went over the Lemhi path and the only person who was an expert in the area was a teenage Native American nursing mother named Sakagawea. We have people all around us who were not privileged and empowered and were not given full scholarships to school in a Christendom world by a church who have spent their life living in a post-Christendom world who are right around us. They are people of color. They are women. They are Im the immigrant church, the majority world church. They are the, the places, these folks who didn't have power and privilege during Christendom are our brothers and sisters who are the leaders and they are all around us. And if we can work, figure out ways, to live in that world with a different model of leadership that is far more collaborative, we will find we have deep, rich resources for the future that we didn't even know we had. And, but it's going to require those of us who are trained in the power and privilege of Christendom to be learners and to deal with the loss, that we are not the experts, that we are going to have to give up some of our place and create different kinds of conversations. And that's been the giant takeaway. The, the giant takeaway is that there are all kinds of resources and people and experiences around us if the mainline dominant Christendom church can be open to the people on the margins. And uh, Dave Gibbons, who's a friend of mine who started a multi-ethnic church in Orange County, once said, the future is here, it is now, but it's just on the margins. And we have got to recognize that when the margins and the dead center, pun intended, collaborate, uh, the world has brand new possibilities for us that we wouldn't see. 
you've mentioned a couple times you're working on a new book. Do you want to give us a little sneak peek into it? Yeah. So basically the, the book, the, the operative idea is that one of my favorite quotes that comes out of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is a section in the middle of the speech that almost gets overlooked where he quotes Isaiah 40. It's actually like an Advent passage, right? The, you know, the, the prepare you the way of the Lord, the rough places will become plain. And he talks about the future and he says this vision of the future. He says, it's with this faith. I go back to the South with this faith. We will hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And what I've been asking is, is if the stones of hope are to be like the first Peter two stone, living stones around the cornerstone of Jesus that becomes a dwelling place for God. If these stones of hope is what we need to be able to create out of that mountain of despair, then how do we become the tool that can that God can use to hew those stones? And so I've been using an illustration to talk about what it means like to become a tempered tool that has the capacity to be able to deal with the resistance and the despair. And as, as Martin Luther King goes on to say, transforms those, those jangling discords into a, a, a chorus of deep community. And I, I think that's the work that, that, that we need, is we need the formational practices that enable leaders to become people who can have the resilience to, de to go through resistance and continue to bring stones of hope out of mountains of despair. So we need to do another interview on this new book, but this time we can do it in person <laughs> on the campus yeah. in California. Anytime, anytime. As soon as it's out, you, uh, you look for it and come on over and visit. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll talk to InterVarsity Press about setting that up. So. Yeah, yeah, well, for those yeah. that want to stay connected with uh, Todd, you can follow him on Twitter at Todd Bowl. Todd, thank you mm -hmm. for challenging us to put down our canoes and gear up for trekking an uncharted mountain pass. It's my pleasure. Really nice to chat with you about it, really. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.